Welcome to the I Belong Here podcast. Please join us on this journey as we will navigate the world meeting fantastic women who are real scientific role models. Together, we wish to inspire the next generation of girls who dream about being scientists. Look out for our male ambassadors too, as they do believe in the representation women deserve and earn in science. Stay tuned for amazing guests, check out the podcast description for credits and acknowledgements, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And she said, don't you change, but I can't help these thoughts up in my brain, yeah. She breaking me down, she loves so hello all and welcome to a new episode of the I Belong Here podcast. Uh, this is a really special episode for us because today we have our first male ambassador of this podcast, Dr. Yon Young. So Yon, hello. How are you? Good. Really, really pleased to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so Yon and I met virtually like a couple of, well, a couple of months ago, no, a bit more, a bit longer than that, uh, in one of the seminars from his department, because my supervisor gave a talk in his seminar, so that's how we met. Mm-hmm. That seems like a long time ago. It was, uh, <laughs> was it the first, the first lockdown? I don't know. There's yes. So many, so many, th- so many, so many. I think it was towards <laughs> the end of the summer, I believe. Yeah, I think so. It was very good. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's the first time we, we met. But exactly. um, yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. Yes. So just to let the audience know a bit more about you. Um, so Dr. Yon Young is uh, he works in the University of Portsmouth. Yon is a scientist whose research aims to understand how our bladders work, how they go wrong, and what we can do to treat patient symptoms. Recently, he has focused on discovering biomarkers for disease and developing these into tests. Yon has a broad background on the biological sciences, which he argues helps with achieving new discoveries because it's sometimes possible to approach a problem from a different angle. Now, this is really interesting to me, and um, I was wondering if you could tell us and the audience a bit more about your work because obviously as many uh, parts in the human body, bladders also perhaps change with age. So I was wondering, what do you what how do you exactly study bladders in your in your work in your research field uh, what are the kind of approaches that you use in the lab or with your research group to to study this particular field yeah really good question i'm not <laughs> going to give too long an answer and make it into like a 50 minute webinar uh, so, so we we've used a lot of different approaches over the years and we've changed our approaches because I think the focus of the group has changed over the years as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so my background was in electrophysiology mm. and also in studying whole organ function. I worked as a postdoc with Professor Chris Fry at the University of Surrey, um, as well as uh, at the University of Oxford with somebody called uh, Keith Brain, mm-hmm. Dr. Keith Brain, and uh, over in the States with Professor Ken Sanders at the University of Nevada in Reno. And each of these people um, had a, a different background. And of course, you learn techniques working in those labs. And then as a PI from 2010, I've applied these different techniques to my own research. So um, I think my PhD was in 
electrophysiology and organ function. So I brought that, I suppose. Um, but I also learned some other techniques such as pharmacology, mm -hmm. uh, working at the University of Oxford. Sorry, so I, I brought that approach. And I think to try to give a, a relatively brief answer that I can mm -hmm. expand upon if you're interested. Um, I think initially when I became a group leader in 2010, my focus was on therapeutics and discovering therapeutic targets for the treatment of bladder diseases. And I think in particular from quite an early stage of being a PI, my focus was on a condition called overactive bladder. Mm -hmm. And I can talk more about that, but um, trying to find new therapeutic targets for overactive bladder because a lot of patients don't respond particularly well to their first line therapeutics mm. for overactive bladder. So they go back to their GP and they want something else and because the drugs don't work. So it's, it's not that the patient doesn't respond, mm -hmm. it's that their, their, their symptoms don't respond to the first line medications. So my first grant was to try to understand why that's the case, why some people, they, they simply don't respond to their symptoms, don't respond to the therapeutics. So the first line of research from the lab was to try to identify new therapeutic targets. And we showed that there are changes to the bladder as disease progresses, and that we get a, a change in the number of the, the receptors that are targeted by these first line therapeutics. Mm -hmm. We get um, a decrease in the proportion of, of those. And we get an increase in the proportion of some other receptors. So it, it makes sense that the drugs won't work because the receptors to which they will act mm. uh, are no longer there, at least not there in the same numbers. So we, we did quite a lot of work on therapeutic targets. And then um, I had a PhD student whose name is Dr. Sepinud Feruzmand. Mm. And her work was a, a really key part of the work from the lab because she had a project to look for biomarkers within urine. And those biomarkers, uh, the idea was to try to find a new way to diagnose overactive bladder mm -hmm. because it's a kind of long-held hypothesis that diagnosis happens too late. But perhaps as well as there being remodeling of the bladder, um, you know, if we, if we diagnose too late, then actually some of the damage, and, and I mean that in apostrophes really, some of the changes will have already been done before the patient can mm. then have the, the, the therapeutic. So if we can diagnose early and we can treat early, it could be that there's still enough of the, the target receptors around mm. for there to be therapeutic benefit. So she screened lots of urine, um, mm -hmm. not a very nice PhD, I <laughs> but she, she, uh, um, Seppi, are you wearing something, a different perfume? No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, we, so we did quite a lot of work as a lab for a number of years looking mm. at urine and looking at chemicals within urine and it wasn't just seppi but hers was the major project that had the, mm. the breakthrough um, that led to a number of fairly high impact papers and we're now trying to develop a tool that mm. can be used in the point of care setting to diagnose bladder disease particularly overactive bladder so yeah. in terms of the techniques to, to eventually answer your question i'm sorry about that um <laughs> <laughs> five minutes later um <laughs> So we, we have used electrophysiology, organ bath techniques, and at sort of initially. Then we mm. wanted to look at therapeutic targets. So we were looking at proteomics and genomics. Mm. And then we still use some of those techniques, but then we moved on to analytical biochemistry mm. to look at the makeup within urine. And then we've used quite a lot of multivariate statistics. So I've got a, a background where I've never really been 
sort of afraid of statistics in the way that a lot of scientists in our field seem to be afraid of using statistics. I am um, afraid so of using statistics. I think a lot so. of people, <laughs> right, we'll come on to that then. We'll, we'll have a <laughs> we'll talk about that. But, um, a lot of people are. A lot of people kind of, they haven't had a, an education in statistics or yeah. you know, they, you know, they've been supervised by somebody who always used the same test. Yes. I worked in one lab that always used the same test and they yes. designed their experiments so they could just use that particular test. A exactly. T-test, that's all they knew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all, all the tests that people ever used in, a, in this particular lab. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so I wasn't ever scared of statistics and uh, I was interested as to how these different, the chem concentrations of different chemicals, obviously they're not independent from each other. Mm -hmm. So why should we do a kind of univariate test where we measure X against Y? when you've got all these different variables that all interlink. Yeah. So it made sense to try and do some multivariate statistics to see yes. whether they, they interlink. And that was key to our discovery of a, a combination of chemicals, which is a hallmark for a changing bladder as this particular disease. Oh, that's uh, so awesome. So it was, a, it was a different approach. So kind of to answer your question, we used lots of different techniques. Mm -hmm. but key has always been to, I think, try to use the most appropriate technique for the question that we're trying to answer. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's, it's like a toolbox, you know, all these techniques are just tools in a toolbox and um, you just have to pick the right tool for the job. Yes. And so, you know, we've never really been restricted to a particular um, skill, you know, to a mm -hmm. particular method. Uh, I was highly skilled at doing electrophysiology uh, 10 years ago, I suppose. And, um, and, and, and maybe, I don't know, yeah, about 10 years ago, but <laughs> I haven't really done that much in the last 10 years. I haven't yeah. done, we don't have an electrophysiology biology rig in the lab in Portsmouth. Yes. I've been there since 2012. So, um, you know, I haven't done any electrophysiology for, mm -hmm. for at least eight years. Um, and, but I'm okay with that because it's not the appropriate technique for the questions that I'm trying to answer now. Of course. And yeah. So I think the key, that's the key thing, I suppose. So that's, that's really cool. And so it's, it looks like by, by what you say, your, your research is quite uh, like applied pharmacology in a sense, you know, like receptors and um, what goes on, you know, regarding the different uh, combinations that you were mentioning. Um, would you say that um, all these things that you study in your lab, you know, when you, when you were mentioning that you have different samples and your, your research group studies them, would you take into consideration perhaps... Uh, like influences from the patient, for example, depending on the lifestyle, depending perhaps on genetic uh, aspects, perhaps, or even like diet and, and lifestyle, you know, do, do you think this affects the results that you can get? And is this something that you consider for your projects? Yeah, um, so that's a really good question. It's something that we try to consider, but I'll be honest and say we've not considered it as much as we'd like, yeah. uh, like to have done. Um, we know that diet affects somebody's genetics through mm -hmm. epigenetic changes. And, and we know that in terms of sort of therapeutics, that if somebody is, has certain, a certain lifestyle, it's going to affect their, how their organs function. Um, and people who are overweight are more likely to have certain bladder yeah dysfunctions disorders um we don't know the mechanism behind that but we we know for example that you can have a diabetic bladder so you can have a number of symptoms and they're a property of type 2 diabetes they're not mm. um a, a, a pathology um that's separate to type 2 diabetes so there are certain lifestyle factors that make somebody 
more likely to have a condition or more likely to have symptoms. Mm. And we know that there are likely to be epigenetic changes as well. Um, in terms of what we are able to factor in, so we found with our research into biomarkers that gender and age are really important influencers on a patient's symptoms. Mm. And, um, and we included their symptoms as well into our modeling uh, to try to understand what, what um, biomarkers within urine dictate yeah. the um, dictate the the symptoms that the patient is is displaying mm -hmm. we also we ruled out medications so we have to be very careful to try to make sure that we're not including people with certain that are on certain medications yeah. or that have had a history of um, certain procedures like radiotherapy or uh, chemotherapy for any type yeah. of cancer because it can affect how the bladder yeah operates. definitely yeah so we yeah so i think we we try to eliminate those things and i'd like to think that in the coming years what we'll mm. be able to do whether it's our lab or other labs is mm. to capture more and more of that information yes and i think as scientists as well as medicine has traditionally been very reductionist because it's it's the best way or sorry it's the simplest way to approach a problem is to yeah. try to eliminate everything that we think isn't important and then focus on the things that are important um but i think in recent years we see that that's uh, that reductionist approach doesn't work for treating all patients or um for understanding medicine more fully and yeah. i think we're seeing that we want to try to incorporate as much as possible we mm. now obviously have approaches with computing where we can not only measure all that additional information but we can store it now without oh, filling great. hard disks so um and then we have approaches with statistics where we can process data and incorporate you know all these different variables we can yeah. uh, so and we, that that simply wasn't available previously mm -hmm. so i think yeah we don't do all the things we'd like to do and you raise some really interesting influences on outcomes that we and others would like to measure so yeah. i like to think that going forwards that we'll have the tools to be able to not only capture that information which is relatively straightforward but yeah. to then include it in our analyses and I think when we do that, we will see some really interesting findings. Mm. So I, I suspect that, yeah, these kind of more, uh, so these larger analyses will shed light where otherwise it's been really impossible to do that with a reductionist approach. Yeah. So yeah, great question. Really good question. So that's, yeah, so it's really interesting because then it, it's, it, it sounds like your, your research is quite uh, translational, you know, it's something that uh, people can use perhaps in clinics or hospitals and, uh, uh, like you were saying, uh, considering those perhaps epigenetic factors mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, people that they undergo chemo or radiotherapy, then at mm -hmm. least perhaps they will have a tool to predict this kind of uh, bladder diseases. So it seems like it's translational, but in many, many fields um, that comes besides your field, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. And I think you can learn from other fields. And Indeed. Are, yeah. Uh, We've, you know, we've, I have a colleague, I don't work with him closely, but his work's interesting. His name's Professor Jim Briggs and he works at the mm. University of Portsmouth. And he and colleagues came up with something called Health Pack, where Pack is P-A-K. Mm. And they, I don't really know this story and I'm summarizing and perhaps summarizing slightly inaccurately, but essentially there are lots of vital signs that are taken uh, in a hospital ward. And he just really asked the question as to if you combine that information, could you predict over a 24 hour period 
mm. whether somebody was likely to have a serious adverse event, uh, um, sorry, a serious life-threatening event, oh. such as a, a myocardial infarction. Mm. So if you take somebody's blood pressure and you take somebody's heart rate and you take measures of certain um, ions within the blood and various other measures, if you pull that information, could that be a useful predictor of mm-hmm. something ro- bad going, going to go wrong? Mm. And the answer is yes. And the answer is that you can do with quite high um, sensitivity that you can do that really accurately. Mm. So all that happens now is that there's an an algorithm and it's on an iPad and nurses and uh, other clinicians will input the vital signs information that they would ordinarily take as part of clinical care that Mm. they used to take and they continue taking Mm. because that's part of routine care. And all that's different now is that same information goes into an algorithm and it then flags whether based on those values, that patient is at risk. And it then means that the clinical team can then more closely monitor that individual and Mm. they could perhaps intervene. So if we think that person is likely to have a a, a cardiac event, then actually they can intervene before that happens. Now, all of that comes about because they've taken a whole lot of information and then they've seen using computing whether a combination of different variables and factors can predict an adverse event. Mm. So they've just kind of asked that question. And I think it's our job as scientists to continue asking those questions. Now, sometimes we'll find that actually take all that information together and it's, it's no, no good. It's not a great predictor. Yeah. Um, and we found that ourselves, that certain combinations don't work very well. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that approach is going mm. to be really important. And what others can learn from our work um, I, I'm not 100% sure other than we took quite a different approach to mm. tackle this problem. All the scientists and clinicians that approached the, um, the challenge of finding biomarkers mm. for bladder disease previously had looked for one chemical. So they'd, they'd, there were a number of studies that have been published since I think about 2005 mm. and they'd all looked at the concentration of one chemical within urine mm. compared to a clinical outcome or a clinical measure of bladder performance or whatever. And they'd found correlations, but there was no cutoff point where you could say, well, actually above that amount, that would be a really good predictor for bladder disease. Mm. Um, And they'd also, they'd also recruited patients who were quite seriously poorly with their bladder condition. Mm. Whereas we recruit people who, were just starting to show some signs of a bladder disorder. They weren't mm. quite sure that they had or they hadn't. So they record some data about their symptom profile. And we found that we got people who were basically asymptomatic and then some people who had very mild to moderate symptoms. Yeah. And so it allowed us to identify biomarkers of early disease. And that's really crucial because we want to identify early disease because we can treat that. So not only yes. have we taken an approach and combine variables but we'd also looked at early stage disease Mm. and those two things together i think are important and different to what other people had done previously yeah i just mentioned those two things because you talked about you know how others can learn from what we do but the truth is we learn more from what others have done in in other fields than i think others will learn from what we do yeah you know this is quite uh uh quite a spot on things to say because uh, I did my, as, as you probably know, because, you know, I put half of my life on Twitter. <laughs> I did my, uh, my PhD in tendons. And uh, one of the problems with, one of the many problems with tendinopathies is that 
um, perhaps when you when people have a mild tendinopathy at the beginning, um, they usually don't go to the hospital, especially if they are young, you know, mm -hmm. because they just say, oh, it will go away or it's fine. I can just go perhaps to the pharmacy, buy something and then just continue with my life. And then when they actually go to the doctor, because the thing is, is, is gone worse, is, is when, you know, all the markers are already, you know, on the inflammatory phase, they have passed the, the proliferation. Um, and then sometimes you, you get treatment for those tendinopathies or those diseases when already mm -hmm. the, the disease is on the mid or end state, you know, so it's, it's, yeah. it's quite a spot on when you were saying, you know, with the diagnosis of the bladder diseases as well, because it's difficult as well to find, you know, when I was writing the introduction of, of my thesis, there is a lot of controversy about which treatments are um, specific for each phase mm -hmm. of the tendon healing and regeneration, yeah. because some people get treated for early phases when they mm -hmm. were not diagnosed in the early phases. They were diagnosed when yeah. there was already a tear, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's funny, you know, when you say uh, you, you can learn from other fields. I mean, tendons and bladders don't have anything in common. But you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. And, you know, relating to that, I've been doing some interesting work recently that I'll tell you about. Okay. Um, and it will seem like a really, really strange thing to to even it's such a change okay. of direction um but i was so i've done I, I've, I've been involved as a sort of expert in the bladder mm. i've occasionally get involved in meetings of healthcare providers so um i've done some work with our local academic health science network and they're a, a group who are just fantastic to, mm. they're called wessex ahsn and i've just defined what ahsn stands for but mm. they they help that relationship between clinicians and academic scientists, um, as well as companies, SMEs, and they just try to help innovation as well as changes to clinical practice. And obviously a big thing for clinical practice is the care of the elderly mm. or, or the old adult. And a big factor for those individuals is going to be continence and urological symptoms mm. so anyway i got involved in some round table meeting and it was really interesting and, and, and good and, and that was you know it was good but it was a sort of discrete activity mm. and then a year later because of that um, my name was put forward to give some um to do some education for this organization called health education england that manages the education of everybody who works in the nhs and so they're putting together an e-learning package about continence management. And they want people working in the NHS to have a better knowledge about continence care. Mm. Because, you know, for whatever reason, it's, it's, a, it's a changing field, like any field. Um, but I think with an ageing population, it's an area that the NHS targeted as being something that they need to improve the education of its staff around. And mm -hmm. that's everybody. It's not just um, healthcare practitioners, but it's the other people like porters and receptionists and, mm. and other people that might come into contact with, with patients. So I, I did um, an e-learning package and that's going to be launched imminently. Um, I know some of the modules have already been launched and our module is going to be launched. It may already have been launched, mm. honestly. Um, uh, but I also got contacted by Tenor and I did some work for, for Tenor. Um, and there are 30 web pages. Um, you can have a look if you're yeah. <laughs> really bored. But um, I mean, clear your internet history afterwards. But um, yeah, so it's um, uh, so they they just 
wanted to improve the education of patients and their carers mm. around what is a healthy urinary symptom and, and what's a un, unhealthy urinary symptom and when should you go and get help? Yeah. When should you seek help and who should you go to? Because there are exactly, GPs yeah. and pharmacists, but there are also lots of support groups. So there's yeah. an organisation called Bladder Health UK and they're absolutely fantastic. So they offer lots of support in lots of different ways, which mm. is just brilliant for a, a patient. And then finally, so that's three things. And then finally, um, oh, I think there's two more actually. But um, <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm doing a leaflet that's going to be sent around 6,000 homes in Hampshire. Oh, nice. About the same thing, about what's healthy symptoms, when to seek help and things. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll send you the link. Oh, yes, later. please. <laughs> and then, um, again, just delete the email afterwards. Um, and then, um, and then. Uh, yeah, I got a small grant to do a pilot because oh, nice. there's this problem in care homes where there's a high turnover of staff yeah. and the care that's required for a, a resident of a care home is quite different to a normal, not normal, that's the wrong word, but to, <laughs> a, uh, to, a, to an adult or a, a young adult. Yeah. Um, a patient in a care home setting, they're often an older adult. They often have multi-morbidities. Um, sometimes they're frail. Yeah. Um, and sometimes one of those particular conditions is quite advanced. You know, it's often mm-hmm. why they're in a residential setting because they have, you know, advanced dementia or they have significant mobility issues or, or, or whatever. So there, there's a huge challenge to caring and caring well for a patient in a residential setting. Yeah. And the result of that is that um, often it's felt that by, by the carers as well as the patients, that that care could be improved. Mm. So I pitched the idea of trying to do an e-learning package for care home staff. Mm. And um, yeah, everybody, it was, it was the strangest experience. We were talking <laughs> before weren't we, about, about um, writing papers and about how reviews can be yes. hit this. But yeah, I approached a funder about this and within 24 hours, they said yes. Wow, um, and, that's super um, fast. And I, I, contacted, <laughs> I contacted lots of care providers. Yeah. And in an instant, every single one of them said, yes, that's a great idea. We need to do that. What wow. do you need? I'll support it. That's amazing. Um, Ham- Hampshire County Council have been amazing. Um, the Wessex HSN are going to be involved. And mm. then these clinical commissioning groups in the area um, are also involved and they were really, really supportive. So the idea is just that we use an e-learning package like you would use for students, um, yeah. for the undergraduate students, and create a number of kind of distinct modules. Hmm. And then the, um, the students are carers and they'll go in and they do some training. And we ask them some questions before and we ask them some questions afterwards and we see whether they've improved their knowledge yeah. and we can see whether it's benefited the patients. So we can get some data from the care home managers about the drugs that are used, about the number of falls, about the mm. number of times patients go into hospital because they're mm-hmm. so poorly they need to go to hospital, you know, that sort of thing. And so it's a really simple, really cheap thing we can do to address the same problem. So we talked earlier about new drugs and we talked earlier about diagnosing disease earlier. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're right about trying to um, treat earlier. And, uh, you know, we're talking about tendinopathies and about yeah. trying to get patients to seek help at the appropriate time. And it's true for the bladder as well, that people still think that a bladder condition, whether it's a UTI, whether it's um, that they're starting to develop some symptoms, like they leak a little bit or whatever, they think that it's part of healthy aging. Mm. So they they just, um, they incorrectly think it's like your hair growing, going gray, my hair (laughs) growing gray. They feel that it's, it's part of that. 
and so they they just don't seek help they're embarrassed as well um, yeah i was gonna tell you there must be also some sort of uh you know um kind of yeah like you say embarrassment around it and perhaps you don't seek help because you uh it, you might think that no one experiences the same problems as you, which is great yeah. with the things that you are doing, you know, with the leaflets and all these associations and movements, because then it helps you, even if it's just a leaflet in your house, you know, or on your care house, it's going to help to not only disseminate the, the problems and the diagnosis and how to seek for help, but also to get support, like you were mentioning earlier. So these things are really, really important. And it's really nice that you do all those, all those things, you know, besides all the, the research that you do in, in your uni. I think we, thank you. I think we sometimes forget that we, we are very experienced at doing a lot and doing a PhD, you know, you're ca carrying on as a senior research fellow. Mm. Um, but you, if you wanted to go into education and be uh, a, a teacher in secondary school, if you wanted to be an analyst and go mm. get a very, very well-paid job in London and be an analyst <laughs> for a, a big firm, if you wanted to be a project manager, if you wanted to go into marketing, if you wanted to be a public speaker or do any form of science communication, all of these things are now within reach having done a PhD because yeah. you, doing a PhD, you develop to an advanced level, a number of broad ranging skills. And it's not just science. No, I think sometimes no. as scientists, we forget that. Mm. And um, I asked somebody, or I don't know why you're approaching me to do this particular thing. And they said, well, because according to your website, you've been <laughs> involved in medical education for 20 years. Of course, it's true. true. Of course yes. it's true. <laughs> and so the idea that you wouldn't then use that to you know, do an e-learning package for staff or an e-learning package for the public or whatever. You know, of course you can you could do that, but we, we wouldn't think to do that necessarily. You know, we, we might be good at Western blotting, so we spend oh. our lives doing Western blotting and we just <laughs> stick to that particular thing. And we oh, don't yeah. think, well, actually, you know, maybe there's a different way to tackle this problem yes. as well as trying to find new drugs, as well as trying to find new ways to diagnose it. Yes. Maybe actually we can just try and raise awareness that yeah. patients need to seek help at an earlier stage. Yeah. That might do just as good. A single leaflet going into someone's house might Indeed. do more good than a life's work trying to find drug targets yes. for this disease. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. You know, oh, this, yeah. Is, this is controversial, but Western, <laughs> Western blots are my oh, favorite sorry. technique to do in the lab. <laughs> this is going to yeah. cause some kind of fire in between scientists. So it's funny that no. you mentioned them because it's one of my favorite techniques to do in the lab. But this yeah. is not shared by a lot of people. <laughs> so I, I really like doing them as well. I haven't done one in a long time. I have taught <laughs> a lot of people how to do them. Yeah. Um, I've made more mistakes than I care to. Admit. Oh, this is, this um, is what happens with Westerns, to be honest. <laughs> but I had, I had a PhD student, um, Jonathan, and he's just an exceptional scientist. Mm. He's so highly skilled and disciplined and just wonderful. Mm. And he spent a lot of time trying to find a protein in the bladder. And mm. we'd had some pharmacological data that suggested that this protein is present and that actually it might do something really, really interesting. Mm. So I got a studentship for him to then look at this and to see whether there'd be changes in the, the expression of this particular protein mm. and if it would correlate with, I said, I'll call it disease, but with disease progression yeah. and, you know, can we then use drugs for this well-known protein? Can we probe yeah. that as a target? Could that be an alternative therapeutic? Mm. And honestly, on paper, 
it sounds like the best project. And I'm talking about it now and I'm really <laughs> excited about it. But my emotions are forgetting that for about a year and a half, oh. tried and failed to, to, um, to detect, to consistently detect the protein. So he yes. would detect it sometimes. Um, and other times it just wouldn't work. It wasn't reproducible. And yes. he tried to change everything over a uh, year and a half. Now, the issue there was the size of the protein. And mm. although there were some antibodies that work particularly well yeah. in lung tissue, so the protein is CFTR. Yeah. Um, and it, the, the antibodies would work really well on samples that came from a, a collaborator whose expertise is, is the lungs. Mm. Um, but we wouldn't find consistent expression of the protein in the bladder yeah and he then moved on to looking at the transcriptome oh, and yeah. he could find some mr mrna but not a great deal yeah and yeah it was it was such a pain for him and i think you know that was the, as as a lab that was a really hard time because there was just he would try numerous different antibodies and it just oh. would never be consistent what would work on one day wouldn't work on another day yeah so um yeah, the funder were were, ha were fine. They were really supportive. Um, the funder, the funders consistently been excellent, and I should say, yes, you know, it's the Rose Trees Trust, and they've been brilliant. Oh, they funded um, my PhD, yeah. so they are they oh, are amazing. They? Yes, oh, yes, they? yeah, they are so oh, great. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, I got to know the uh, team there, and they're they're excellent. So they funded five projects for me. Mm. Um, so they funded a couple recently, um, yes. just between 2020, just at the turn of this, yeah. this new year. Um, yeah, they've been fantastic supporters of my research. Yes. They're, they're brilliant. So, um, so yeah, but anyway, tough. So they, the Western blotting, brilliant. But <laughs> tough for poor Jonathan. So if you ever meet Jonathan, please don't mention Western blotting. Oh, that I will, I will he, never. He will disagree with you. He will disagree with you. I will <laughs> never, never mention it. You know, I, will, I also had to optimize uh, my Westerns during my PhD. It was my first mm -hmm. year. Uh, I was trying to blot uh, collagen, which is super high molecular weight. And, you know, collagen is like yeah. a gum, you know, it's, it's super yeah. highly crushing. So to try to go that through a gel, uh, and reducing gel that's that's yeah. i don't know I, I can like i will say half of my lab book from my first year of phd is just different combinations of western blots but at the end i got it it's there on my thesis it's also yeah. on a paper and i'm really proud so, of it yeah. <laughs> that's really good yeah i'd like to i'd like to publish jonathan's work because i think yeah. it'd be good for others that might want to do the same thing definitely um but yeah it was, it was really hard for him but no, I've otherwise listened. I really like it too. And I, I really like that um, sort of that, that sense of magic. So the bit where it appears, you know, the, the kind of magic trick, you stick your, you have oh. a membrane, stick it in a machine. and The and moment wait, of the truth. Appear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? I, and I think, you know, sciences that have that, that yes. have that sense of um, uncertainty, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Yeah. That's really exciting. It is, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's very cool. So, you know, linking, you know, with Jonathan, your uh, cheesy student that you were mentioning. So currently you are a PI, you are a group leader. Um, yeah, yeah, so I assume, yeah, so I assume you have, uh, you know, like a variety perhaps of cheesy uh, students, postdocs, uh, maybe uh, technicians, uh, perhaps in your group. So how how did you, uh, now that we have your field uh, clear and what you do and, you know, you do all this uh, fantastic research, but also really fantastic dissemination of what you do and also 
reaching different uh, audiences that I think that's really important in, in science, you know, science communication uh, to different audiences that don't know anything about science and they are perhaps just worried about the, the issues that are going with them. I think that's that's amazing of you to do. Um, Thank you. So uh, how did you how do you come to this point, you know, because you mentioned you, you were in different universities across the UK. So how, how did you get motivated to do science and how did you achieve the point that you are now in, in your career? Um, I'll try not to give too long <laughs> I'm mindful that I give these really long, boring, rambling answers. It's not boring. You, know, no, you fell asleep at one point. Um, we, both, we both know that that's true. So, so I, I was really interested in science from quite, science from quite a young age. My mm. uncle was a histologist at St. James oh. Hospital in Leeds. And my, for my 10th birthday, I got a microscope. Oh, that's amazing. That's the best gift ever. It was awesome. And then <laughs> I, my birthday's in late November. And then so shortly afterwards for Christmas, I got a, you know, the cardboard folders oh. um, full of slides and he'd made slides for me of different organs oh um, well they were all of you know from people that died um, oh, oh, okay slightly less cute um and my mum my mum was brilliant because you know when when i was growing up she spent a lot of time with me and my siblings mm. and so she was really patient and she sat down with me and we went through the slides together and we looked at the gross histological features on a mm -hmm. kind of child's microscope um and i think you know my parents were very interested in wildlife as well and growing up we had wildlife around us that was mm -hmm. obviously a big part and i had a, a really good teacher at school a biology teacher his name was um, mr norton and and mm -hmm. he was he had so much passion for the subject so i think i think mm -hmm. all of that was was really key yeah um and i and, I did really well at A-level biology, and so I wanted to be a dentist. I have no idea why I want to be a oh. dentist, but I want to be a dentist, and I didn't get into <laughs> dentistry because I didn't get the right grade in French. Now that's in French, story. okay? Yeah, I know, I know. So I didn't get the right grade in French. I did well in uh, chemistry and in biology, and I got the school prize for science. So oh, I did fancy! Fine in science, but not in French, and that was enough to not mm. get my place. At dentistry at the University of Liverpool mm. so I did biology at the University of York and um, although the first year was a little bit wayward very soon I found a number of different modules that really mm. aligned to my interests which are really broad I, you mm. know I love all of biology and um, and so yeah I applied to do a PhD at, at Cambridge and for some miracle I got in <laughs> and, um, I'm, and, and they were probably the happiest few years of my life because wow. it was such a supportive environment I think you get this image from the media um, and perhaps from academics that that maybe don't know Cambridge or have had a bad experience yeah that um that it's this or it's that but it was so supportive there were so great. many aspects to working there which were unique to that particular department mm. we had a head of department professor Malcolm Burroughs who was so supportive of students we had a tea room where um, there were two tea breaks a day. And then at lunchtime, there was um, a lady and she served, she served tea and coffee and some biscuits and bits and pieces. And mm. everybody would stop for 15 minutes and they would go and have tea or they'd go and they'd eat their lunch there. So you had this research culture, you had this culture. Mm. And then on a Friday afternoon at 5.30, everybody would stop what they're doing just about. Mm. And they would go for a happy hour 
And the oh, nice. students to take it in turns to take the departmental van to a cash and carry to get alcohol, oh. bring it back, bring it back to this tea room and sell it and sell it without any profit. So you would get yeah. a beer for 70 pence or something. Mm. And then people would stay around and they talk and they might then go for dinner or something. But most people, most weeks would then stop and the head yeah. of the department would invariably go and his wife would come in and they together oh, that's would so nice. and the members of academic staff would go around and there were people who were frs mm. there was somebody who went on to get a nobel prize professor Ooh. sir john gurdon and they all would just be normal people who wanted yeah. to talk mostly about science but often about other things as well mm. and there was just this fantastic atmosphere and it was just brilliant and so I think, you know, that, that was great. Now, I wasn't doing translational research. I really wanted to do translational research, I think, by the end of my PhD, or at least I wanted to do something that would benefit mankind. Mm. And I felt that my fairly blue sky research project for my PhD, mm. you know, wasn't really what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, so I, I got a, a postdoc where I was doing something a bit more applied and mm -hmm. there was a lot more pharmacology in that. So that was quite a good step up. And I'm not going to go through every single position <laughs> to hear, but um, I then progressively got more and more translation. Yeah. And then in terms of the sort of success as well, I think, you know, you have to persevere. You have to, um, you know, accept that papers get rejected and grants get rejected and you have yeah. to keep trying. You have to learn from these processes. You know, you try and learn from, from other people. Yeah. So talk to other people about what's been successful for them and things like that. And there are some really good guides online. There are some, you know, some brilliant people that um, produce excellent guidance for people like myself. But um, yeah, I just persevere, I suppose. And I think yeah. a lot of it is good luck. So I think if you put in a, a decent application, as long as it's not terrible, mm. then I think you've got a, a reasonable chance. And, you know, a, a funding council, um, medical charity will obviously look at the scores for, for applications yeah. and draw a line somewhere. But if, as long as they're not just funding one project from a hundred, if mm. you have a reasonable chance of success, then, you know, you just have to be, you have to put your name forward. So you've got to yes. apply for these things. And uh, yeah, so I just, I just try to always push myself to challenge myself. I try and learn new techniques. I try and, take different approaches in my field. So hopefully when people are reviewing my work that they <laughs> see we try something different. And I think all of that's an important part. So I hope that answers your question, Mindy. And certainly I've given you my life story anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely, it definitely answers my question. And it's a, uh, it's an amazing journey. And uh, um, do you like as a very particular question, how do you mm -hmm. cope with grand rejection? because this is one of my main, uh, you know, I, I myself want to go through the PI route. Uh, I'm still on my yeah. first postdocs, you know, so I think I still have a long way to go, but yeah. uh, you know, it's something that I think about, I will say weekly, you know, um, mm -hmm. how would I, you know, manage this situation once I am a PI, how will I manage, you know, with a grand rejection or with, I don't know, someone that I want to support in my lab, but I cannot, yeah. uh, would you say, this is perhaps part of the challenges from obviously from your academic trajectory and uh, how do you think you well, how did you solve them or how do you think you can give advices to people like me look up to pis to be yeah. in their position one day and then learn yeah, from yeah. from you guys you know in your experience so i think there's quite a lot in what you said 
you have a very specific question, but there are some other bits and pieces yes. as well <laughs> I'd like to talk about. So I think even though you're just, uh, just, sorry, I, right, if I could go back in time, I'll remove the word oh, just. That's, that's perfectly um, fine. <laughs> no, no, no. I, even though you're a postdoc and yeah. this is, this is just your first postdoc. Yeah. I don't think that's too early to be thinking about being a PI. Yeah. Um, I've got friends who are successful and they became a PI within a year or two of their first, um, of, of finishing their PhD. Mm. I think you have to have a good idea and you yeah. have to have a track record that would demonstrate to a funder that you can then take yes. the idea and you can actually achieve it. Yeah. You know, that you can, you logistically, that you have the tools and that you have the environment to make that a success. Um, I think you have to have good ideas. So I think right from any age, I think you need to write down ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would suggest to anybody who's thinking about applying for a grant or doing a study, and this could be a PhD student, it could be a, a master's student that's thinking about new experiments, you know, have a, a file open and it could be like a Google doc mm-hmm. because that's great because it always saves, but just have it open or have a little uh, bookmark or something and yeah. have it easily accessible. And every time you have an idea, write it down. Mm. So I think that's important. So I would encourage you not to think that you need to wait 10 years to be applying for grants. Yeah. I would start applying when you, you know, if you, I think you need some papers usually. And I think, um, I would start with small funding. So I'd mm-hmm. aim to get some seed corn funding. I think if you, you know, you personally have had funding from Rose Trees Trust. Yeah. Um, I've had funding from Rose Trees Trust. So if you wanted to apply to Rose Trees Trust, you're known there. Mm. And, you know, I would be really happy to look at an application if mm. you wanted to do a draft application and, and, you know, give you some feedback and things like this. So I don't, I don't think it's too early, but I would start with smaller grants so yeah. you can get, the small like Nuffield grants to support a student um, during a summer for two mm-hmm. weeks. Yeah. And certain societies like biochemical society or mm-hmm. physiological society give these small grants as well. Mm. And I think that looks really good on your CV. So you start to build up yes. a track record. Yeah. Then if you go for seed cord f- corn funding so that you, you know, like 10, 10 K, then um, that's the first step. And then after one or two of those, if you can then get a PhD student, um, mm-hmm. So you get a studentship, you know, that will cost a charity or an organization 70 or 80,000 pounds. So you're not going for half a million pounds. No, you're not yeah, going yeah. for a big grant to start off with. Mm. So you just, you just go in, in small stages. But there's no reason why you can't start getting those, um, those summer studentship yeah. awards at this stage in your career. Um, but then anyway, going on to what you were saying. So, you know, when you apply for a grant, I think you have to accept that there's only a small chance it's going to be funded. Yeah. Now, some people take the approach of almost playing with the statistics. So they, um, that's not the right phrase, but they, <laughs> they kind of work the odds. So if mm-hmm. we say that there's a one in 20 chance of getting a success with a grant, then you could apply 20 times. Mm. So you could put the same grant into 20 different organizations, or you could live old enough that you put the same grant in 20 times. Now, I think both of those deserve a laugh because I think they're both ridiculous ideas. <laughs> you wouldn't put in the same grant. Thank you, a bit late, but um, <laughs> you, wouldn't put, you wouldn't put the same grant in to 20 different funders because it wouldn't be appropriate for many yeah. of those. No, yeah. And you wouldn't put the same grant in 20 times over 20 years because if it wasn't funded one year, mm-hmm. it's unlikely to be funded the next year. So yeah. you would always be looking to refine it. Um, but 
still you can play the odds. I think that was the phrase I'm looking for. You yeah. can play the odds a little bit. I've never done that because it takes a lot of time to do a grant well. So my personal yes. strategy is to do few applications to do them when I need to mm -hmm. and spend a lot of time trying to make them as good as possible. And my personal success rate is really high for putting in funding applications, having them submitted. Mm. But you know, my funding record isn't as good as, as many, but my aim isn't to kind of get massive income and millions of papers. My aim is to do good science and yeah. to foster a good research group and to help support the students and their staff within that group mm -hmm. rather than, you know, become professor this or professor that as soon as possible um, yeah. and make a massive name for myself. That's that personal gain. Isn't what drives me, honestly, it's not. Um, so grant rejections come and if the grant rejection comes and it just happens to coincide with the end of someone's salary, mm -hmm. then it's really hard. So, um, we talked about Jonathan. Jonathan is going to leave to get a postdoc in the States mm. and the salary is out of this world. It's incredible. Mm. Um, my, I had a PhD student that's worked as a postdoc for many years, Seppi, and she will emigrate to Australia. So, you know, I will in inverted commas lose her. <laughs> um, and so these things happen and it is because of the timing of grants and things like this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, our group is, constantly changing its direction so sometimes it's appropriate to bring in people with a different skill set so i'm just about to go out to recruit an innovation fellow so mm. a little bit like a research fellow but we want them to do some business activities yeah. as well and um and so yeah there is that sort of turnover of staff and yes. i think that is that that can be good for science and it can be good for the group but i think it's terrible for a postdoc and you know i've had um fairly short-term postdocs and it's terrible because you you never you never you know if you have to move house for a two-year position oh yeah um and to move to a different city and to you know maybe bring somebody else with you or yeah you know some people have kids or pets and that sort of thing <laughs> to bring all of that with you with all of that upheaval and to say goodbye to friends and to yes. move into a new lab and with all those unknowns if you know for a year sometimes or uh, yes. two years or, or whatever it's it's crazy i mean i yes. think there sh it should be a bare minimum of three and even that doesn't seem like very long yeah it also takes yeah, the time to adjust it does it does so you ask a really good question but it's, it's a difficult question because i think as a pr you you do feel a responsibility for the people mm. you work with and um you know you want to provide for them and you want to make sure that they can have a you know a, a career and things like this i think the best thing you can do is to give them the skills and to give them the yeah. support and to, you know, to make them aware of the reality of the situation. Yeah. Um, I had a new PhD student that started in February and I, I had a call with her and for about 45 minutes of that hour, I was telling her how difficult it is to do a PhD. Mm. And, you know, I think by the end of it, she probably thought that I was insane or that <laughs> I was trying to sort of put her off. But, you know, when I said it's really difficult doing a PhD, you agreed. And the reason it is, you agreed it is, is difficult. it is really, really hard. It is. And um, people don't know that at the start. Mm. I, I don't think you can ever know that. I could tell you a hundred times and tell somebody a hundred times. They still wouldn't really know it. They no. would listen and they might be polite and kind of nod their head. But you don't yeah. really know it until you've, you've been through it. Yes. Now, I think you come out stronger and better for having done it. But, um, yeah, the act of being a PI is, is hard because you do feel... 
mm. that you are trying to support those individuals and yes. you know that they've got bills to pay and that they're looking to you. Um, and I think all you can do is to make sure that they, you try and give them as much of, of, mm. of what you have to offer as you can. Yeah. So to transfer your skills to them, to give them good opportunities and things like yeah. this. I mean, a really good example is um, this PhD and postdoc, um, Seppi, who, again, another brilliant scientist, and she was so, her skill set was just so broad. Mm. She was really good at so much. And we took an innovation route with her PhD. Having made a discovery, mm-hmm. we didn't publish, uh, and we chose to patent because we wanted mm. to make something, we wanted to make a device. Now, that was simply because she started um, as, a, as a pharmacist. She did a pharmacy mm. degree at Brighton, and she then went on to um, be a pharmacist at various different pharmacies in, in Brighton and the surrounding area. And I think, you know, she won't mind me saying that it was frustrating for her to have so many patients come in and have urological problems yeah. um, and, and find that the drug that they're being prescribed wasn't helping their symptoms. And she knowing that there wasn't an alternative. So she stopped working as a pharmacist at a well-paid, I think a relatively well-paid job for her at that point. Yeah. To then go on to a PhD bursary, which isn't well-paid, um, because she wanted to try to address this particular problem. Mm. So um, she, you know, so so then going fast forwarding three years to try to develop a gadget to help diagnose the disease at an earlier stage that's what she and I had as our primary driver for her project. Mm -hmm. Now she didn't publish. Um, We published a couple of things, but not from her PhD, not in the main body of the work and not the high impact stuff. We didn't do that until she was a postdoc and Mm. it wasn't her first postdoc. We had a number of sort of short postdocs, but it it was, um, it was all relatively short term funding and we weren't able to publish. So that was a a stress for me and for her. Mm. Um, But all I could do was to try to, give her as many opportunities as possible. So of course, I, yeah. would, I would have teaching, but I would say, do you want to be involved in the teaching? And mm. we'd discuss the pros and cons of doing that. And there would be opportunities for her to go and meet stakeholders like representatives from pharmacies or patients yeah. or whatever. There'd be the opportunity of an outreach talk or whatever. And I'd always say to her, I don't expect you to say yes to this. But <laughs> I want to ask you, do you want to do this? Mm. Um, it would be a good opportunity, but I'm very happy to do it. And so I try to make her, as I have done with all the students in the lab, aware of all these other possibilities that they can yeah. you know, um, take up in order to learn. So to give them a, a well-rounded CV. So I think, you know, a really long answer again, I think that's <laughs> the best way to try to give, to give, you know, these people the best possible chance yes. of a job. Even if you can't guarantee funding of forever. Course then that's the best way. Yes. And I get them involved in writing the grants and things like this. So that's great. Jonathan wasn't even a PhD student when he, he and I wrote his, um, the application for his PhD studentship. Mm. And Seppi was a co-applicant on a, new, a number of grants that we wrote together, mm. um, some of which were successful, some of which were unsuccessful. So, yeah. you know, she, her CV is amazing. And, you know, she's an incredible scientist. And that's down to her. It's not down to me. But yeah. Um, she was receptive to, to, to getting all of those skills. And I think, yeah. you know, that's really important. I think that's, um, that's awesome because, um, you know, we were talking about um, becoming a, a PI in the near future or what, what are your, your points of view in terms of, you know, be actually being a PI. Um, I, maybe you will agree with me. I think in, especially in the academic environment, I think 
there is a major challenge in staying truthful and staying truth to your truthful to your science and you know driving your group because of you know you are managing these people but these people have lives you know they they, yeah. they come and go like you say they might have kids or, or pets or whatever um mm -hmm. you you are securing this funding for them and it's not only about paying them so they go to your lab and they do the work you know like um in my personal experience i've i've, I've had a massive like a really nice relationship with with my boss with aram and mm -hmm. i've always been blessed with these opportunities you know with with papers and with uh, getting involved in writings and stuff and mm -hmm. that has made me grow so much like it's it, it makes a massive difference and not it, this is not even for getting uh, to get like a PhD or getting, uh, uh, I don't know, like a paper out of it. It's not like a material uh, end of end of uh, the, th the thing, if that makes any sense. It's about mm -hmm. getting this support. And I think in the academic environment, this is a challenge, you know, because sometimes yeah. it's it, it, like you said before, you need to be reader you need to be then professor blah 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 then you need to get all these papers you need to get all these numbers and you kind of forget about the truth about being a scientist which is not about all these numbers it's about doing good science and this is something that i really admire from pis like you you know and i think this is needed in in academia and this is one of my multiple motivations to be a pi because i want to do the science that I like and th that my mm -hmm. group likes, do good science, mm -hmm. contribute to the scientific community in whatever field you do, because that's not the point at the end of the day, but especially mm -hmm. to have, you know, a group of people that they are happy to come to, to wake up every morning and to go to your lab and then yeah. to, to do the research and you feel happy as well seeing them doing the research. So it's like a two way street, you know, you learn side by side. So would you say this is like a, major or ma or minor perhaps challenge in in academia from your point of view yeah so i think i think you have to have that motivation and yeah. so when i recruit the primary thing that i'm looking for is motivation mm, i can teach great. somebody i can teach somebody skills um and they if they've got the motivation they can go off and they can go to mm. another country and they can learn a skill um with a collaborator or they can go on a course and they can learn it or they can open a textbook or read mm. a bunch of papers and they can learn something. If they don't have that motivation, then nobody can give it to them. No, no, no. Um, and I think what you said about, you know, all these different measures of success is, is true. I think key is finding an organization mm. or perhaps a, a, you know, a line manager who, who doesn't necessarily, um, who isn't necessarily driven by those metrics. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, it's really good at Portsmouth because I think while we've been incredibly successful, we had a staff meeting today and our, um, our research and innovation income has doubled um, mm. from last year. So despite the last year being COVID and things like this, people have been very good at bringing in grants and publishing papers and things like this. Yeah. Um, while, while doing all the teaching and this extra teaching, and we've mm. been really successful with research and innovation. And as somebody who has a leadership position in that domain, that, you know, makes me feel very proud. Mm. Um, but while all of that's true, we don't have senior colleagues that are telling us that we need to, you know, they don't, they don't sack people for not bringing in papers or bringing yeah. in money or publishing papers. And there are other institutions where I've worked where that is the case, um, where there's a lot of pressure on PIs to produce. Definitely. And where 
the value of patents or the value of, you know, other projects that somebody might do just yeah. isn't seen. Mm. You know, so we talked earlier about sending a leaflet around 6,000 homes in Hampshire. That doesn't sound like a, a big deal. And, you know, in many ways it's not, but it could be the, as I say, it could be the most important thing I do with my life. With it, is, that knowledge. it is a big deal. That knowledge. Yeah. But I mean, it's not, it's, it's not something that would be, if I put in a application for promotion to professor, for example, yeah. it wouldn't be the big thing that a panel yeah. would look at. Yeah. And it wouldn't make it, you know, if I tweet about that, it's not going to get a thousand likes or something. <laughs> it would just be kind of, oh, that's nice, yeah. you know. But actually, honestly, it could make a massive difference because if there's people yes. who aren't seeking help and they read it and go, oh, actually, I've got some of these symptoms. I'm going to see my GP. Then they see the GP and they get a test and they find that they've got something mm-hmm. and then that's treated early you know it could be life-changing for that individual and now we do that a few times it could be fantastic for a healthcare system Mm. so i you know going back to my point i think um it as a pi it's important to work somewhere where there's not that pressure because yes it's the the road to whatever success looks like is never linear and it's never flat you know and so you have to have the time and the support to get to where you want Mm -hmm. to be whatever that is for you and, um, you know, if somebody says there's just one route or that there's just a single target, then I think that's wrong, you know, from yeah. my experience. And, um, you know, I've not published loads of papers. I've, I can't remember. I don't know how many I've published, but others will have published. Others in my position will have published, you know, two, three, four times as many. Yeah. I've not brought in as much grant funding as, as some, yeah. um, certainly not as PI. I've brought in, I'm lucky because I kind of work in as part of big teams. On, on biomarker research, but I haven't brought in the same amount of grant funding as other people. Yeah. And I probably don't get invited to give keynote presentations as, mu- as much as other people, mm. but I'm okay with all of those things because my yeah. measures of success are others, yeah. the things that, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I think that there's sometimes the problem in academia, going back to your question, sometimes the problem in academia, if we think that the only measures of success are papers and grants, um, they are indicators of some form of success. But, yeah. you know, we could publish in journals which have a low impact factor mm. that essentially would take our money and publish our papers no. without yeah. a, a thorough peer review. Mm. Um, some of these predatory journals that oh, yeah. spam folders. We could yes. do that and we could publish 100 papers a year. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you'd be professor before, <laughs> you know, before my hair grows grey, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> you, you, you could, but that's not what's important. So no. integrity is important and um, yeah, staying true to what's important to you is important. Mm. So you, you need to, you need to find um, an institution that yeah. will support that and yes. you have to stick true to, to what's important. Mm. To yes. That's, that's amazing. Like I really admire that um, from you and, and other PIs that they follow the same, the same dynamic, you know, because it's ironic because all these papers and all these measurements of success that give you success and give you numbers and gives you promotions, that is coming from the people that work with you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I don't know, if, if, if you don't keep these people happy, then, then what's the point, you know? Um, so I really admire, uh, you know, the vision that, and, and obviously the dynamic that you apply in your lab, because I think we need this, uh, we need this more in, in the academic environment. I think, it, I think it can be hard because you're not necessarily, I don't know exactly how you promote yourself, how colleagues know what you're doing. Yeah. And one of the 
issues in academia is that you tend to work in a very insular way. Yes. Um, so, you know, I have an office on my own. We don't have mm. a tea room like I had, when, yeah. had uh, when I was doing my PhD. And there's no communal place. And there are colleagues that I don't see for many weeks. Mm. Um, and there are some colleagues that have offices near me that I'll see almost every day. Um, and then since lockdown, I don't see anybody. Yeah, so it's even Amazon worse now. Delivery drivers and the post and the postman <laughs> and some neighbours, and that's it. You know, the Amazon and, driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Amazon driver. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, I think it's yeah. So I think sometimes there is this challenge where you know what, what is success and what is activity, mm. and when academics are really busy trying to juggle all the other aspects of their mm. lives, of their working lives, of the demands like the teaching loads and the administrative mm -hmm. loads. I think if somebody's bringing in lots of grants, then it seems that they're successful and maybe that's okay. Yeah. But then, you know, if somebody's doing loads of teaching and they might say, well, if I wasn't doing so much teaching, then I could be successful. And Indeed. there is this, there is this sort of competition or this, um, there can be this sort of feeling that, you know, someone's doing better than I am because they've had it easy or they, they work in a particular field that's mm. really well funded. You know, they work in, in cancer and, you know, there's loads of money in cancer, isn't there? It must be easy for them. They can get any grant from Yeah. You know, there was all that sort of stuff, but um, I don't, I, I don't know how much this actually goes on. I, I think that people are mm. too busy doing what they're doing to worry about somebody else. But <laughs> I do, I do feel that there is this issue with academia where we are very isolated, where we don't get the chance to exchange ideas and collaborate as much as possible. Indeed, yeah. And I've been very lucky to collaborate with others. I think that's something yeah. that's really important. That's great. Um, so so far it's been a fantastic interview like i'm learning so much from you um i'm learning you. so much you know from academia to, through your trajectory to through your visions as a visions as a pi and an academic environment um now besides all this amazing research and science communication and you know all these things that you do in in the space of one office day <laughs> if that makes any sense um I know that um, you also participate in women in STEM campaigns, and um, mm -hmm. this um, I would like to, you know, wrap up the last block of the of the podcast with this uh, theme, um, because you, like I said at the beginning of the episode, you are the first male ambassador for us for this podcast, um, and I would like you to, you know, to express a bit to the to the audience what do you think about this particular movement, and you know, as a PI. What do you do in, in your group if you do something to visualize this, this, this kind of things, you know, the role of women in, in yeah. academia? Uh, because as a PI perspective, I think that's going to give us like a really rich uh, discussion uh, for the podcast and for the, for the interview. Excellent. Um, really, really good question. I, I think <laughs> it's a challenging question. And mm. I'll be really honest and say that. Go for um, it. <laughs> I'm, I'm a work in progress and mm. I am trying to improve my understanding of the challenges that mm -hmm. individuals with protected characteristics uh, yeah. including females um, face mm -hmm. um, and I am trying to do everything I can in a number of different positions that I have to try to facilitate colleagues to try to remove barriers and I think I've done some really good things but I think that I could do a lot more mm -hmm. and so I can describe some of that um, yeah so I think I think I'm most aware, I was first aware that there were problems. I think you assumed there were problems. And I think if you look back as a, when I was a PhD student, and I think about the, the, the PIs, there were more male PIs than mm -hmm. females. At the time, 
I think I'd had lecturers who were mainly men um, at, at York and, um, you know, at, 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 yeah, I think principal at York. So, I th you know, you, you sort of stop and then realize that there aren't many people of certain protected characteristics. So you, you don't have that many um, colleagues who are a non-Caucasian um, mm -hmm. and you don't have many um, sort of senior members of staff who are non-male. Yep. And suddenly you realise that actually that, that isn't right. That doesn't represent society. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of fast forward to 2015 and I was invited to be part of an Athena, Athena Swan self-assessment team. And mm. what that means, if anyone's not familiar, um, it's a, a group of people that puts together an application um, to get a, a particular kind of accreditation to say that mm -hmm. a university department is trying to do everything it can to support women mm -hmm. in, and so you know trying to put policies procedures in place to try to help women and try to um, remove some of the barriers that we know are intrinsically in place because science and academia has historically been dominated by men all the systems that are in place were designed by men to help men to succeed exactly. and we need to change those so the idea of being part of that and volunteering to be part of that was to try to you know, make myself better aware of some of the challenges yep. and to do something about it. Um, I've had two leadership positions. So one of them came to an end. I, I stepped down from a, a associate head role mm -hmm. uh, in, in December of last year, and I'm still the interim or acting director of an institute mm -hmm. at the University of Portsmouth. And I've done that since 2017. Um, and obviously I'm a group lead as well. So I feel as a, in these positions that I have a huge responsibility to, mm. you know, be aware of issues that people with protective characteristics face yep. and to do everything I can to enable them to succeed. And I think it would be a long answer to say what I've tried to do and some mm -hmm. things I've tried to do and failed and some things that I've tried to do that have been successful. I, I mentor individuals. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm currently mentoring somebody who's a, 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 a junior academic uh, who's applying for roles, including an internal role. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm helping that individual with that. I'm an experienced um, kind of recruiter. And I sit on a lot of interview panels and, and other panels. So, you know, it's a good op opportunity to try to use that knowledge to help her. Yeah. Um, and I have had more female PhD students than males. Uh, yep. All my postdocs <laughs> have been <laughs> female. Have been female. Uh, all of them have been mm -hmm. female. And it's not to say that what I do is I go to a, a job interview and there's a male <laughs> candidate, a female candidate. And I pick the female candidate. Yeah. It's just that we try to kind of create a interview process that allows the female, if they have the right characteristics, to shine. Course, um, yeah. And you know, you try and kind of meet with if a candidate contacts you because they're interested in the post you try to show that actually this is a place where they could work where they mm -hmm. would be supported so you try and make it aware this is an attractive place to work um and things like that so i don't know i've done i've done a number of things and i need to do a lot more i think mm. trying to understand the problems is a really that would be a really good mm. first place to start and so we have conferences um, like the Athena Swan conference mm -hmm. that we have at Equality and Diversity conferences. And so I always go along to those and I try and listen. They're largely, the audience is largely female. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it's a it's a good forum for people to talk about the problems that they have um, and there are guest speakers and they talk about the larger problems in academia mm. and so you know the key thing really is just to listen listen to what the problems are yeah um, to try to understand that better and um, I was part of a I still am part of a, a, a ref a quality and diversity working group and I have the role of taking all the data to do with ref submissions mm. and try to analyze it in terms of protected characteristics to try to understand at an institutional level um, where there might be uh, sort of inequality and where we might want to try and address mm -hmm. that. And then I work with the university leadership, uh, including two of the pro vice chancellors to try to address this. So that takes me right out of my comfort zone Yeah, and, um, you know, to present, these data and it's quite uncomfortable data for a university to have to listen to, you mm. know, to say, well, there's been a change in proportion of individuals with this protected characteristic mm. and we're actually going backwards here and we've made good progress here and here, but we need to address that. You know, it can be awkward. Um, mm. You know, these are uncomfortable truths for people to listen to, but yes. I'm very lucky that the University of Portsmouth, they take uh, equality, diversity and inclusivity very yeah. seriously mm. and they are very much interested in the data and they're interested yeah. in doing something about it so that's mm. really good so it's a case of working with leadership committees and with staff mm. in the schools and departments to try to change that culture yeah. um, as well so there's there's a lot of specifics that I haven't gone into but mm. um, you know I think the, the key thing is understanding the problem and I think you know that's around listening to people who have the protected characteristics who yeah. tell their stories of what issues they have had mm. um you know if, if 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 there are um activities within the school if there are funding calls if there's support available that people cannot attend because they have care and responsibilities yeah um, you know that's a problem so you you know in a leadership role you have to make sure that these are accessible to everybody yes and anyway i shan't go on with that but um yeah it's i think the, the foremost thing is to listen yeah um and i'm trying to learn i'm mm. trying actively to learn so you've seen me on twitter um you know when i became a male advocate for the one million women yeah. in stem program yes. i was really pleased about that but what mm. i really wanted was for my female colleagues to and, and perhaps some male colleagues to to help me to build on that you know to use that responsibility and that platform for good mm. um loads of people liked the tweet <laughs> uh, <laughs> one, only one i think only one person suggested people to follow mm. um and um, i mean i i think I, I follow an awful lot of female um mm. scientists and policy makers and things like this um but uh, yeah I, i'm a work in progress and i need to know more so yeah i'm very receptive so if you or anybody else has suggestions of things that I or people in my position mm. could do better then I'm, I'm all ears. Well I think this is this is great and this is one of the reasons why I wanted you to to be in this podcast and, and share these experiences with the audience because although the main objective of this podcast you know is to is for me to share the stories of, of this amazing woman you know that I come across every day when I scroll down Twitter and I see mm. all these amazing women doing all these fantastic things yeah what well, other of the purposes for me or with this podcast is to show you know uh, male ambassadors like yourself that not only uh, support the incorporation of women in science and in the academic or industry environments, but also, like you said, are trying to understand what is going on. And you were really right in saying that that's the first step, because like you said earlier as well, um, 
you know, these kind of regulations and committees, they were designed by men. And I think mm -hmm. that's where the root of the problem might be, because we, yeah. if we are not heard from the beginning, then how come you are going to like know what, what are my complaints or why are my, how, what do I feel in these kind of environments, you know? And that's why yeah. I wanted to showcase as well with the podcast, a male ambassadors like you that are trying to understand the root of the problem and they are helping us as well, you know, to be seen and to be heard mm. and to be recognized for the same achievements that our male colleagues have, you know? Yeah. Um, sometimes somehow uh, when we have a high hierarchy position or, when we have a new title, this is happening to me recently, you know, technically mm -hmm. I am a senior postdoc in the lab and I still feel uncomfortable saying it because I feel that I don't deserve to be called a senior postdoc or I don't, uh, I shouldn't use my title if, if that's even a thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, it's it's so good, you know, to count with, with, with male ambassadors like yourself and others that they that they help us uh, not only to understand, but also to to tackle the problems by simply hearing us, to be honest. Um, yeah. So thank you from, from my heart <laughs> and no, from the, the sure. audience. <laughs> the, and the, the sad thing is that a man would be more likely to use that title. And oh, then yeah. a, a male colleague who's in the same position as you might be then known for being yeah. senior, whereas yeah. you might not known for being senior, no. then they might be more likely to get a promotion or to mm. get an opportunity that, that you wouldn't because they would, somebody may incorrectly think that that person is senior to you and that yeah. you are not equal. Um, and so there are lots of sort of inherent behaviors that happen because of the way in which men behave, you know, they're more mm. likely to go for something. They're more likely to do this or that. Um, and we need to be really aware of that and create, um, a system that tries to encourage women and and, and others with protected characteristics yeah. to mm. to go for things or to mm. to do this or to do that you know because some, for whatever reason there might not be i was reading this really interesting thing about um when you write a job advert and how you word the job advert makes a massive difference on mm. the engagement of people with protected characteristics to then go for it mm. so you can have a leadership position and if you call it a leadership position, a man is much more likely to apply for it than a, than a woman. Mm. Um, and we know from data that actually women make much better leaders. You know, this is not a <laughs> controversial opinion. This yeah. is something that is supported by you know, empirical evidence. Mm. But if you, if you word a job advert in such a way, it just puts women off. And so you then, as a recruiter, get a whole panel of, of males applying mm. and then the man gets the job and and you're disappointed that more female candidates haven't applied but mm. actually it's down to you because you've put a job advert together which it just puts people off puts women mm. off um so there's so much work to be done and this yeah. is a really complex area so i think the start is to acknowledge that there's a problem and then the next step is to then mm. listen to women about the problems yeah. they've faced and, and then I think thirdly, there's a lot of research about the things that we can do and mm. we should be doing. And I think that's the next step. Um, and I'm just beginning that journey. So I hope that, you know, in 20 years time, I've, I've actually <laughs> done something decent. Um, that this is not just all hot air um, and good intention because, you know, good intention doesn't help anybody really. <laughs> yeah, um, I know, I know what you mean. It's a start. It's a start. Yeah, but I think um, 
it's you know respect so much already for what you're doing because others are not even trying to understand so honestly it's uh, it's it's amazing that's one of the reasons why i wanted you to be here you know to share all of this with us oh, thank you i think that's very kind but, um yeah, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like justification enough because i you know i, I, I really feel i'm at the beginning of that journey so yeah although i have some anecdotes to tell and hmm. although there are some things that i'm even currently doing even this week doing to try to support people to go out of my way to support people with yeah. protective characteristics mm -hmm. to help them with their career it never feels like enough and I, d I don't think it is enough i think that people in leadership positions whatever that may be they have a responsibility to help others um yeah. you know they have this analogy about making sure the ladder is still there you know mm -hmm. you don't pull the ladder up after you you know you you climb and then make sure the ladder's there so somebody can follow yeah. um and i think that's so important so mm. Yeah, um, it's a it's a work in progress, and yes. uh, you know, I hope that you and and others will help me and and my male colleagues to be mm. better. Mm. You know, so don't give up on us if we make a mistake. Don't give up on us mm. if we um, don't seem to understand. Um, unfortunately, we're a product of generations of doing things incorrectly. Yeah. Um, and I think there are many people who want to be better. Yeah. Who want to do things. Uh, you know, to support others, you know, they're not naturally sexist or, or, or bad people, but they've mm -hmm. been brought up in a society that, that is sexist or that, yeah. that has barriers in place and they might not know any different. So I think, you know, it's, it's important to raise awareness and to support male colleagues to be better. Yeah. So please continue to do that. And I don't, I think, I don't think that male colleagues um, will push that away. I think that if, if, that support is given by yeah. yourself and female colleagues. I think that mm. would be gladly received. Mm. Well, I think um, uh, speaking obviously on my behalf, I'm, I'm not going to give up on you guys <laughs> because <laughs> I think don't. no, 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 I will not because the, I don't think the problem is to make the mistake um, because you are trying and you are putting, you know, your feet to start walking, and, and that's that's the most important thing, really. Um, so thank you again. Um, no, 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 not at all. And um, if I if I ask you just one last question to wrap oh, up yes. the the interview, if you could give, uh, if you could enlighten us with your uh, wisdom <laughs> about this uh, <laughs> about this uh, woman in the STEM movement, what what would you be? What would you uh, give as a piece of advice uh, for the next generation? You know, of girls that. They are thinking about uh, becoming a scientist. What, what they can learn from you if you have one, um, like take-home message for them. Okay, so if it's just <laughs> one, I think I think I, I probably have two, but I think if you could say two. One, you can I say think, two. <laughs> I, well, I, okay, so I think the the one thing is, and probably the key thing is to do something that motivates you. You know, you talked earlier about you have to get out of bed and want to go yeah. to do that work. Um, as a scientist, you work long hours often, mm. and it, it's challenging in so many more ways than we've talked about. We have talked about some of the challenges, haven't we, today? Yeah. Um, so the key thing is to be motivated. And I don't think you can embark on something because it's you, you feel as though it might be the right path. Mm. I think if you're not passionate about it, then you, you're not going to succeed. Whereas mm. I think if you are passionate, you'll find the answer. So you can come across a locked door, but you'll find a way around it. Yeah, completely um, agree. So yeah. I think you have, you have to be really passionate. Um, 
I think if the if I if I could be cheeky and give a second bit of advice, go go go. <laughs> it would it would it would be to collaborate. So um, collaboration brings publications. It brings mm. exposure to other groups. It means that you can publish and bring in grants on periods of time where you wouldn't otherwise do that. Yeah. Um, so I've been very successful as a co-applicant on grants where I haven't been as a principal applicant on, mm-hmm. on grants in some years. And otherwise, other years, it's the other way around. Yeah. Um, but we sometimes feel that we need to work with the people in our groups mm. and that's it. But our skill sets are often something which is, is going to add to the project of somebody else in the same university, in a, another university, you know, anywhere. And, um, you know, we have a lot to offer. I think we forget that. So if we, if I say that the, in a word, it would be to collaborate, but in mm-hmm. a broader sentence is to be aware that we have a lot to offer to other groups yeah. and to, you know, to, to put yourself out there and, and to bring, bring, begin those collaborations. It's been really important for me. I've changed direction slightly, tiny changes of direction. We touched mm-hmm. on that with, as a, a group leader. Um, and I collaborate on a number of kind of broad studies to do with biomarkers we haven't even talked about. Um, and all of that comes because I'm very willing to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm happy to do the legwork. I'm happy to do this, happy to do that, you know, just to support colleagues and to be part of a big machine, not the key cog, you know, not the, the lead author, not the final author, somebody in the middle, but who has a significant contribution. And I, th- I think that's really important. You know, science is about teams. And so you don't have to always be the lead person. Now, it doesn't mean to say this isn't, an argument against the first point, which was yeah. to kind of follow your motivation. Um, I'm still doing the things that I want to do. I'm mm-hmm. applying that to a different scientific discipline. Yeah. So I work with human physiologists who try to understand how the body works. And so I do biomarker research mm-hmm. and we use the same techniques that we do with the bladder. We just use it on a, a different scientific problem. And I love doing the research and mm-hmm. the teams that I work with are so passionate um, about what they do. They're really, really fantastic people. I love it. And it's not my primary research focus, but it's a brilliant way to apply my skills and my knowledge to support other colleagues and to be part of a bigger picture. So that second piece of advice about collaborating, and yeah. about knowing that your skill set is valuable to others, I think is important because it does help with those fallow periods where the grants aren't coming and the papers are being bounced. Yes. So that, 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 that's my second and final bit of advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's really, really nice uh, advices uh, to wrap up the interview. So I don't know about you, but I've learned so much uh, in the space that uh, we have been talking. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here and I've learned so much from you. And uh, I really hope, you know, when all of this is over, we meet in a real conference with conference biscuits. <laughs> in coffee yes. conference biscuits and coffee yeah that oh, yeah. would be fantastic wouldn't it i can't even yes. imagine those days we oh, were so my. lucky weren't we oh yes oh goodness people people in three dimensions oh um, yes thank you so much for having me um i've really enjoyed it um i did um i love talking about my research thank you thank you so much uh, i, I appreciate no, it so no, much thank you for your time yes and thank you thank so you. much for the interview and everything thank you no thank you and you'll sleep well tonight i can guarantee yes. it uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> <laughs>